Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End, although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. Ruth May Brown Snyder was born on March 27, 1895 in Manhattan, New York, according to a couple sources. According to another source, she was born in 1893, two years before. I was unable to confirm which date was absolutely correct, but I'm going with 1895 due to the fact that I saw the date more often than not. This will be not only the first discrepancy to this story, this story will provide you with nothing but doubts, confusion, and ridiculous discrepancies. Her mother was Josephine Anderson, born in Sweden. Her father was Harry Sorensen, born in Norway. Harry would change their name to Brown to kind of Americanize his family. He was a sailor turned carpenter to better financially support his family. They had a very humble life and couldn't afford expensive items. Much of the family's money was spent on Ruth's many medical issues. She suffered from epilepsy and was prone to fainting. At the age of six, Ruth had to have intestinal surgery, then an appendectomy a few years later. Unfortunately, that was a botched surgery that left her with many internal issues. The Brown family attended church regularly. Although Ruth didn't have a strong faith, she did regularly pray just in case. She did not enjoy school and was easily bored. She never really thought about having a career, but did hope to marry. She knew she would make a good wife because she was neat, a good housekeeper, quick with the needle and thread, and a good cook. Her goal was to find a good husband that would provide her and her future children with the finer things in life. In the meantime, she would get a job at the New York Telephone Company. She worked the night shift for two years until she meets and marries Albert. Only having an 8th grade education, Ruth marries at the age of 20 on July 23, 1915 to Albert Edward Schneider, an art editor for Motor Boating Magazine. Albert was born on October 11, 1882 in New York. They were 13 years apart. He was a very successful artist for Hearst Publications. In 1912, he had been engaged to the love of his life who had sadly passed away shortly before their wedding of pneumonia. Albert was said to have never really gotten over her death. After three years of marriage, they have a daughter who they name Lorraine. Ruth being well aware of her husband's still broken heart of the loss of his first fiancé, she would always feel like his second choice. Albert kept memorabilia of her around the house, like obvious stuff. He hung a portrait of his first love in the couple's home. He kept scrapbooks of their vacations together and also named his boat after her. Yes, I could see why Ruth might feel like the second fiddle. He also wore a lapel pin daily that had his first love's initials on it. After Lorraine was born, Albert spent all of his free time on his boat and not with his family. Ruth became upset being stuck in a loveless marriage. After ten years of marriage, she starts an affair with a married corset salesman, Henry Jude Gray. They seemed to be polar opposites, and yet their attraction was instant. They met as often as I could at Ruth's house and when Lorraine was at school. 
even taking Lorraine to hotels with them and having the little girl wait for her mother at the hotel lobby. After hooking Henry, she decides to tell him that Albert was abusive and needed to be stopped. Ruth often talked to Henry in a baby tone to get what she wanted, referring to herself as Mumsy and Henry as Bud or Loverboy. Gross. She would repeatedly ask Henry to kill Albert. He would refuse, and she would say something like, But Mumsy needs Loverboy to do this. Insert vomit sound. But instead of getting a divorce, she decides killing him is best. Ruth takes out life insurance on Albert and attempts to kill Albert seven times over the course of a year. She gave him rat poison to help him with his hiccups, added sleeping pills to his cocktails, and even tries to gas him. So finally, on March 19, 1927, Henry agrees to kill Albert. The two would-be murderers hatch a plan. Henry spends most of the day drinking, trying to build up some liquid courage. He walks to the Snyder's house and proceeds to pace around in front of their house for over an hour, stopping under streetlights and taking sips from his flask. He then enters the house through the back door. The Schneider family wasn't home as they were attending a party and would be home late. Henry hides in the spare room, as Ruth had told him to do so, where she hid a lead weight, rubber gloves, and chloroform. You know, murder tools. The family returns around 2 a.m. Ruth opens the spare room just a crack to make sure Henry had showed up. Ruth enters the room and the couple have sex while Albert slept just down the hall. Seriously? An hour later, with the murder tools in tow, the couple begin the assault on Albert, who is in blankets over his head, face covered. Again, discrepancies on how this actually plays out. Some reports state that Henry hits Albert first with the lead weight so clumsily that it only grazes him. Albert yells and reaches out to grab his attacker. In a super whiny voice, Henry screams to Ruth saying, Mumsy, Mumsy, for God's sakes, help. She grabs the weight and smashes her husband's head. This blow kills him. Another account would state that Ruth wrapped a rope around his neck to keep him from moving stuffed chloroform rags up his nose and then hit him with the weight. The blow to his head doesn't kill him, but he suffocates from the rags being shoved up his nose. Ruth and Henry stage a badly planned robbery after an even worse planned murder. This murder would be called the Dumbbell Murder, planned and carried out by the worst of all idiots because they were so dumb. Knocking over chairs, hiding pretend stolen items... Henry gagging her and loosely tying Ruth's hands and feet. She knocks on her daughter's door and Lorraine removes her mother's gag and runs to the neighbor's house to call the police. The well-seasoned police officers realize quickly things aren't what they seem. Items were found hidden around the house that Ruth claimed had been stolen in this alleged robbery. When questioned by police officers, she quickly confesses that she knew of the murder but that Henry was to blame. They find Henry hiding out in a hotel room. He too quickly confesses that he knew about the murder, but says that Ruth is to blame. By the time the trial rolls around, the lovers are at each other's throats. Not only is the murder nicknamed the Dumbbell Murder, but the lovers were nicknamed the Granite Woman and the Putty Man. Due to her strong personality and the power of persuasion, and his 
being a shell of a man who was easily manipulated. The trial becomes a media circus slash carnival attended by many celebrities. They had their own attorneys representing them. Ruth's attorney blamed Albert for his own death, stating it was his fault for removing the love from this Snyder house. Still being in love with his fiancée that died and practically forcing Ruth to find companionship elsewhere. She plays the part of the suffering wife, stating that Albert ignored her most of the time, only taking her out on the occasional movie. It was Ruth who read from the Bible to her daughter and made sure the family attended church regularly. Her lawyer doesn't emphasize the affair between the lovers, making it seem insignificant, stating Henry was a manipulator, making it seem seem like he made her go out, implying her with alcohol and seriously impairing her good decision-making. It was Henry who encouraged her to take out the life insurance on Albert, and also he who sent her the poison to give Albert. Henry's turn on the stand paints a picture of a man who had lost his manhood. He was fooled by a monster of a woman, a serpent and a fiend. All of his reasoning and hope was gone, stolen from him by lust and passion, inflicted by a conscienceless, abnormal woman. He told the court of all the times that Ruth tried to kill Albert before. Henry said he told Ruth how crazy she was, and innocently started to detail that it was Ruth who took out the life insurance on Albert without any direction from him. Also, that it was Ruth, not him, who delivered the death blow to her husband. After this, Ruth begins to sob loudly, so loudly that even the judge glances in her direction. It takes the jury 98 minutes to come back with the verdict of, you guessed it, guilty. First-degree premeditated murder, so all the guilt. The former lovers seem surprised. Really? Especially when they hear the price tag of their most poorly planned crime would be none other than death. One account states that Henry is executed first by electric chair at Sing Sing Prison in New York on January 12, 1928. He sat in his cell waiting for the warden to come for him, smiling. He had received a letter from his wife forgiving him. He told the warden that he was ready to go and that he had nothing to fear. Ruth follows a few minutes later after the flickering lights of Henry's execution. She said that God had forgiven her and that she had hoped the world would follow. Another account would state that Ruth is executed first, ten minutes before her former lover. Ruth and Albert's daughter Lorraine, who is nine at the time, goes to live with her maternal grandmother the day her father is murdered. After a legal battle between both sides of the family, Ruth's mother is granted custody of Lorraine. Ruth requests that her daughter not make a final visit to say goodbye. A very sly reporter from the New York Daily News snuck a camera strapped to his ankle into the death chamber during Ruth's electric chair execution. The reporter snaps a photo just as the electric current strikes Ruth's body. The photo runs in the next day's paper with the simple headline, Dead. And the story fades into history. The camera is on exhibition in the Smithsonian's National Museum of History in Washington, D.C. Enter the Conspiracy Corner.
Not only did Ruth take out a life insurance policy on Albert, but it was a double indemnity policy. A double indemnity policy would pay double for death under certain conditions or circumstances, when death occurs as a result of an accident or an unexpected violent act. But this insurance policy would be declared invalid in 1930. I feel like the truth is not clear in this case, she said, he said accusations. As soon as their plan wasn't a success, they turn on each other. And man was this crime not a success. They bumbled everything. They blamed each other for the exact same thing. They thought they were so smart covering everything, but what a bunch of dummies. What is clear is that they are both responsible, so they pay the price of death, just like Albert did. I just don't believe at all that divorce wasn't a better choice. I know she thought the only way she may ever get any real money was to cash in on his death, but he was really successful. A divorce may have worked out better for her financially. I know her childhood contributed to her warped sensibility about money, always being told no. She took matters into her own hands with getting money and it backfired in the worst way. Death is not better than divorce. Priorities, people. My hope is that no one has to live in fear, ever. As always, I will never give up and read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. Thanks to Find a Grave, Murderpedia.org, and Wikipedia.org. Thanks so much for listening. I am Rachel Vallisnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>